0: We could say that one way of defining or describing the nature of a Buddha is as someone who has come to the end of seeking, come to the end of searching. That one way of describing an enlightened heart is the heart that is free from the painfulness of lack and insufficiency and incompleteness. Now Siddhartha, before his enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, was a heroic seeker. Disappointed with his life, disappointed with all he had, lovely as it was, he understood that it could not cool or console this aching sense of there being something missing, something lacking. So he did what we generally do with disappointment. He did what we generally do with a sense of lack. He got busy. So he got busy seeking experiences, seeking a transcendent happiness, a transcendent peace. Seeking what it meant to be truly free and seeking that everywhere but where he was and with who he was. He sought all that he longed for outside of his life, his heart, his body, his mind, his relationships. Feeling separate and apart from all he longed for, he confounded that sense of lack by seeking the end of his longing somehow separate and apart from himself. Through suppression, through resistance, through disconnection, through disdain. Even through self-punishment. As many years of practice as an ascetic. Abusing himself as a way to seek the end of pain. And in the end of that search, Siddhartha returned to the very places he had fled from. Where else could he understand what it meant to be free? Apart from his body, heart, mind, and life. This is a lesson, an eternal lesson. It is a lesson that has been repeated throughout time. It is a lesson and a journey we all go on ourselves until we come to that place where we really deeply know that wherever we go, we take all of this with us, this body, this mind, this heart. So he came back to all of this to find an end to seeking. Now the turning point for Siddhartha, one of the turning points, was the remembering of a time when he was a child, and sitting on a hill overlooking one of his father's fields and just seeing a farmer plowing. And he remembered remembered that there came to him in that moment this very sublime quality of peace and contentment, of ease, a genuine ease in his heart, a genuine calm. And he remembered in that moment that there was a sense that it was enough, It was complete, it was sufficient unto itself. Nothing to be added, nothing to be lost, nothing to be gained. And perhaps it was just a small glimpse, just a very tiny glimpse of an enlightened mind, of intimacy and freedom. And remembering those qualities, he took his seat under the Bodhi tree and he actually, it wasn't a very accidental step, you know, he did sit under the Bodhi Tree, determined to sit until his blood ran cold, if that was what it took to be liberated. But sitting under the Bodhi Tree turned his attention to everything he'd rejected, everything he'd tried to disconnect from, understanding that if liberation of enlightenment could not be found there amidst this complex life, where else could it be found? So attending to his body, attending to the mind, attending to his life, he saw so clearly and so deeply that there is sorrow, there is a cause, there is an end, and there is a path to the end. And he came through that understanding to an end of seeking. And he got up from the Bodhi tree really, you know, not too modest about it all. You know, really saying, I've done what needs to be done. You know, I've come to the end of the path. I've understood what needs to be understood. I've understood profound, limitless liberation. In fact, as the story goes, you know, we we often hear about him returning to his previous companions in the spiritual life. But actually, before that, he got up from the Bodhi tree and happened just to bump into somebody on the road. And he, you know, sort of beat his chest and said, you know, guess what? I'm the Tathagata. I'm the one who's gone beyond. This person looked at him and said, well, you know, whatever, you know. (laughs) Now, curiously, at this point, the Buddha didn't turn into a statue. He didn't move to a cave. He didn't retire from life. In coming to an end of seeking, he didn't stop questioning. He didn't stop being deeply committed to all that he understood to be true. He didn't stop or end being deeply engaged with the world and with people with teaching and with caring. In fact, throughout his life, he lived a very vital, a very creative life. He didn't, in that understanding, turn away from the world or to, turn away from suffering and just said, you know, well, I got it and two bad, folks, you know. He knew the only response was compassion. But he had come to the end of seeking. Now, Siddhartha's story is an archetypal story. It's also our story. All of us in our life are making this journey from estrangement and disconnection to intimacy. We're making this journey from resistance and blame and fear to acceptance. We can trace our own journey from a sense of lack and incompleteness, hopefully it being a journey towards freedom. And perhaps really the heart of the archetypal story, the heart of Siddhartha's story, is really an invitation to all of us to really just ask that question of ourselves. What would it mean for us to come to an end of discontent? What would it mean for us to come to an end of seeking? When we look back at our lives, in a way it can seem like our whole life has been a search. At times it's been very creative, born of deeply held aspirations, deeply held uh, values. At times that searching can be driven by fear, sense of lack, Discontent. Because we often see that in our seeking, we're not really seeking for something we already have. We're seeking for all that we believe that we don't have, that lies somewhere else. This different, this better, this improved mind and body, this improved life and experience. We seek for perfection, for love, for safety, for refuge. And most often we seek for all of that apart from where and who we are, and that is the tension and the pain in our seeking. But because, because it becomes later, a postponed life, a postponed liberation, a postponed contentment. Later, after I've got rid of this, in the future, what we wish for, what we need. This is the vocabulary of discontent. I need is the vocabulary of a belief in insufficiency. We often too believe that the end of our seeking, the contentment, the freedom, the sufficiency, that the end of our seeking probably has many conditions getting something that we don't have, being someone we are not, becoming something else, getting rid of everything that gets in our way. Milarepa was, he's uh, kind of one of my favorite yogis of the past. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the story of Milarepa, but anyway, a little bit of his story is he really did boot camp practice. You know, he lived in the solitude at the high mountains in a cave, and he lived on nettles. Now, you might think that that's probably not true, but I really have to tell you that there are yogis today who live on nettles. You know, in fact, my teacher... When he was young in training, and he came from a very poor family, so he had very little support as a young monk. And he used to live on nettles for many years. In fact, they called him Skinny Raptan. That was Raptan, was his name. They called him Skinny Raptan because you don't get too much weight when you live on nettles. And then after a while, he got a Rinpoche given to him to train, you know, so he got some support. Then they called him Chubby Raptan. This is before he became quite venerated. <laughs> anyway, Milareffa once did one day went out of his cave to gather firewood to cook his nettles. And when he came back, he found that his cave was inhabited by all these vicious demons. They'd taken up residence in his absence. And he tried everything to get rid of these demons. He negotiated with them, tried to make deals with them. He tried to frighten them. He tried to scare them. He tried to overcome them. He, he sang to them. He offered them mantras. He blessed them. He prayed for help. He tried to pretend they weren't there. And one by one, all the demons began to disappear until only one demon remained. And this was the most fierce and the most ferocious demon of them all. And all of his strategies exhausted. Milarepa confessed that he could do no more. He could do no more to end this demon's habitation. So in the end, this is a story, remember? And in the end, he placed his head in the mouth of the demon and said to the demon, you know, welcome, stay a while, you know, move in, bring your friends (laughs) in. And like all good Buddhist stories, this one has a happy ending. And the demon, in the face of Milarepa's surrender, was transformed into a rainbow. Now I suspect that to some extent we can all see ourselves in Milarepa's story. The strategies we engage in, the avoidance in the face of our demons, the despair, the resistance, the fear that can be part of all of our lives. It is truly so hard to be near that which is unpleasant or painful or threatening. It's so hard at times to be near grief or sadness or heartache or a sense of lack. And the moment, the movement to disconnect is such an impulse, it happens so quickly. And what we really see is how much aversion can be one of the real bastions of our lives. Aversion almost seems to be in our bones at times, uh, almost kind of like a cellular resistance. And I don't think that it's hard for any of us to see that anxiety and aversion are the proximate causes of disconnection in our life. Anxiety and aversion is what makes us depart, makes us separate, makes us You know, pull away, withdraw. We disconnect from thoughts that are hard to be with. At times we disconnect because of aversion or anxiety, from emotions that are hard to bear because of aversion and anxiety. We distance ourselves from people that we struggle with, from pain that feels too much to accommodate. And yet the impulse is remarkably unsuccessful. You know, disconnection as a safety mechanism, I must say, is really a complete failure as a strategy. Because we see whatever we endeavor to abandon in some way follows us. It it just rebounds back at us. And what the impulse to abandon does is it really strengthens aversion and anxiety with each enactment of it. In fact, the endeavour to abandon the feel that we need to abandon something externally or inwardly is really like creating a fence and hanging a sign upon it of no confidence. Of saying that it's not possible for me to go there. And sometimes with abandonment, it is as if, as if we are feeding our demons and solidifying the tendency towards aversion and anxiety. Now, I forgot to tell you that this talk is about intimacy. So intimacy is the first step, we might say, on the path to liberation, to being at home in our bodies, at home in our minds and lives. As N.T. teacher once said, that enlightenment is to be intimate with all things. Intimacy is a way of slowing down the momentum, of abandonment, turning the tide of disconnection. Intimacy, we might say, is the antidote to aversion and ill will in all its guises. The aversion that is the root of all of our estrangement and alienation and disconnection, aversion that is the root of intolerance and judgment and the impatience that so disturbs our heart. And as I mentioned the other day, the Buddha speaks of aversion as just being one of the manifestations of fear. And we all know the expression of that aversion of fear. We might say that the reflex, the reflexive movement of aversion and fear is to disconnect. Now, aversion, if we really look at it closely, you know, if we stop trying to explain it or justify it or whatever, you know... Fix it. Aversion, if we really look at it really closely, just the feeling of aversion, if we look at it fearlessly, is actually really quite a terrible suffering. It's so, it's almost, aversion is like a sort of toxic virus that spreads through our bodies and minds to infect our lives, to infect our relationships. Aversion is also a very powerful home of the sense of me, the sense of I and then also the creation of you and then. So really to find freedom within our hearts, we are really asked to be intimate with aversion, to explore it, to understand what aversion is. And this is not vague or theoretical, because I don't know about you, but I I don't think most of us really have to struggle very hard to find moments of aversion to be intimate with. We could begin by asking ourselves what demons still live in our caves and see that we've all tried the same strategies as Milarepa, to ignore them, to negate them. We may even have offered our own demons endless loving kindness with gritted teeth and clenched fists. <laughs> and we've all gone the pathway of explaining to ourselves and to the world about how appropriate our anger is, that other people are averse of types, but mine is, of course, quite righteous and justified. And at times after exhausting all our strategies, we may still there's a de- see that there's a demon or two remaining in our cave. It might be a person, a person in our life that we're really struggling with, who has hurt us in the past, who is hard to bear in the present. The demon in our cave might be our politician. It might be someone here. Our demon might be an illness that lingers or an obsession that rages in our mind or a a disappointment that we can't let go of. Intimacy is not about being free from the difficult. Intimacy is about being free within the difficult. And at times we inch towards intimacy. When we see the, the terrible torment and suffering in the world, when we see at times the depth of our own woundedness, at times we can feel it's just too much to open to. But even that feeling of it being too much is something to be intimate with. You know, And I think aversion, this whole kind of pattern of aversion, learning to be intimate with it, sometimes we do that in bite-sized pieces. You know that in our times of greatest calmness, we invite our demon in and say, stay a while. See what that's like. We might think that the small moments of irritation and anxiety and intolerance in our lives really don't matter. It's very easy to sort of brush them off. But actually, these small moments of irritation and intolerance and impatience are really the seeds of greater intolerance and hatred and impatience that are fed by our dismissal of them. Now, intimacy begins not with judgment or blame, but with willingness and with interest. We learn to have a dialogue with the difficult. Learning to have a dialogue with the difficult. There's a wonderful Tibetan prayer that says, Grant that I may be given appropriate difficulties, that my heart may be awakened and my path of compassion fulfilled. The appropriate difficulties are the ones we've got. It's not like a plea bargain, you know. So what does it mean for us to have a dialogue with the difficult, with our worst enemy? What does it mean to have a dialogue with an aching back, and an obsessive mind, or any of our demons? First, to have that dialogue, we need to be there. We need to be steadfast. We need to be willing to stay present and not to flee. It's so true in our lives that we only ever hate from a distance and that we only learn to love and to soften by staying close. And we may begin to discover that the size of our enemy is actually equal in size to the size of our aversion. They're not different. The size of our aversion is the size of our enemy. The size of our enemy is the size of our aversion. When I was a child growing up um, with a father who was too often very angry and very frightening, it would sometimes seem that in times when he was angry, it would seem so big that it would fill the whole house. And it seemed so big and so powerful that the children, uh, me and my brother and my sister, we would curl up and we would hide. And now my father, he's an old man. You know, he's a small man. I thought he was going to be angry his whole life. And I'm really amazed that something's changing. And yet when I see him now, I see so much his loneliness and his fear of being out of control. And in you know, a really knowing, don't need to hide. And it's it's that loneliness, that fear of being out of control that I can have a dialogue with. You know, and I do see this in my own life, that whenever I feel at all aversive, what I'm doing is pushing the world away. That even the slightest bit of ill will is a way of pushing the world away that any time I might consent to irritation or impatience or intolerance, it just creates that pushing away. I really actually see in my own practice, my own life, that I really can't afford aversion. I really can't afford ill will. That great anxieties, small anxieties great anger, small angers, great intolerances, small intolerances, that they're all the arms and the legs of the same demon. And we need to stay close and begin to see that our demons and our suffering really may not be in all the people and the events that we struggle with in the world, but the demon truly makes us suffer. Is our resistance and fear and aversion. To read you a poem by Mary Oliver. She says, My father, for example, who was young once and blue eyed, returns on the darkest of nights to the porch and knocks wildly at the door. And if I answer, I must be prepared for his waxy face, for his lower lip, swollen with bitterness. And so for a long time I did not answer, but slept fitfully between his hours of rapping. But finally there came the night when I rose out of my sheets and stumbled down the hall. The door fell open, and I knew I was saved and could bear him. Pathetic and hollow, with even the least of his dreams frozen inside him, and the meanness gone. And I greeted him and asked him into the house and lit the lamp and looked into his blank eyes, in which at last I saw what a child must love. I saw what love might have done had we loved in time. It's not only the difficult people in the world that we push away. So, too, do we turn this terrible power of aversion and resistance upon ourselves with judgment and disdain and self blame and guilt and scorn. And as Narayan said last night, the Buddha taught hatred is not ease, does not cease through hatred, but by love alone does hatred cease. And we all have the potential, of course, for anger and fear and aversion. And we all have the potential for kindness and fearlessness and love. And the cause for perpetuating anger and ill will is estrangement. And the cause for acceptance and understanding is kindness and generosity and forgiveness. There's a tremendous intimacy within mindfulness it's really, perhaps the heart of mindfulness. The willingness to attend to all the small and large moments of our life where there is aversion that we so easily neglect. It is a beginning of intimacy. But also the willingness to attend to all those small and large moments when there is kindness and generosity and love that we so tend to ignore. We are so prone to focus upon the imperfect and the failings and the flaws. And we so easily overlook those countless moments in our life where there are these small moments and sometimes large moments of generosity and kindness and care and tolerance. And we need to notice them. Because these are the, the, those moments are the foundations for nurturing and understanding how to nurture all that is wholesome and healing and liberating. To be willing to have a dialogue with the difficult, the painful, the habit of aversion is a great leap to make in our heart. To have a dialogue with the difficult is actually to have a relationship with the difficult. And it is the beginning of the end of being governed. There's a story I want to read you about. (coughs) A man told the story of how his heart was transformed after an accident in which he lost his sight. He spoke of the power of touch, touching the tomatoes in the garden, touching the walls of the house, the materials of a cushion, or a clod of earth, as surely seeing them as fully as eyes can see. But it is more than seeing. It is tuning into them and allowing the life they hold to connect with one's own life like electricity. To put it differently, this means an end to living in front of things and a beginning of living with them. Never mind if these words sound shocking, for this is love. You cannot keep your hands from loving what they have really felt, moving continuously, bearing down and finally detaching themselves, the last, perhaps, the most significant motion of all. I think this is the kind of dialogue and intimacy we are asked to have with all that we hate and fear, to know it deeply and to let it go. Now the story of Milarepa, as I told it, had a very happy ending, the demon turning into a rainbow. Now what would the story of Milarepa look like if the demon took up the invitation? moved in, brought its friends, what would have been asked of Milarepa? It's what the Buddha called the understanding of the first noble truth, that the nature of samsara is, there is certainly a degree of unsatisfactoriness and unreliability and uncertainty and unpredictability. At times there is discomfort and pain and torment. It's never going to be perfect. And the discomfort's actually part of what samsara is. And we could all our, exhaust ourselves terribly trying to devise new strategies to make reality other than it is. Or we can turn towards it. I'd like to point out that the first noble truth is not the end of the story. There is also the second noble truth, the causes of torment and Discontent, And the third noble truth, the ending of suffering, the ending of ill will, the ending of struggle, that liberation of the third noble truth is not outside of the first noble truth. The liberation from pain is not outside of the pain itself. Just as Milarepa would be asked to get to deeply know his demon, we are actually asked to find the the same intimacy with all of our demons. And out of that intimacy is born acceptance, making peace with. Not an acceptance of passivity or resignation, but the making peace with, the befriending, that is really born of learning to deeply, deeply surrender our aversion and resistance and ill will. To know that freedom of heart that can invite our demons to stay a while. That freedom of heart is really what makes our caves boundless and vast and spacious. Now at times in our life we do stumble our way towards acceptance, learning gently, gently, moment by moment, to to learn just a little how to let go of our dislikes and likes, our views and our stories, learning just a little bit, as we've learned so many times during this week, to let go of our impatience and our intolerance. Acceptance is really no more than learning to lay down the burden of arguing with what is, of struggling with of fearing and, averse and aversion, acceptance is no more than laying down that burden of demanding that life in this moment must be other than it actually is. And how it is just now is our invitation to care for it, to tend to it, to find the tenderness, Now acceptance is made much simpler, actually, by our deep willingness to just look a little bit at these notions of me, because actually, you know, we don't have a version without me, (laughs) you know, we don't have struggle without me. So we really need, as I mentioned, you know, aiming the nozzle at the base of the fire, We actually need to look at this whole ideology we have around me because this is a story of resistance, and that's where the story of resistance and blame lives. It's what fans the fire of ill will. And if we can really start to just put it down a little bit, just put down this narrative, this ideology of me, you know what? Anger is anger, fear is fear, aversion is aversion. Acceptance on a deeper level is a kind of fearlessness. It's a place of deep wisdom born of investigation. What is it that makes someone or something feel unbearable? What is it that makes any part of ourselves, our mind, our bodies, our hearts, something to be resented or disdained or rejected? What is it that leads us to divide the world into friends, into enemies? You know, itself and others. Sometimes we might be tempted to say it's judgment, but actually it's something more deeply embedded than the fleeting and last, uh, you know, temporary, averse of thoughts. It is, what is deeper and more embedded is much more our view. You know, born of perception, there are feelings. There are memories and associations. Born of perception, feelings, memory and associations, clinging and aversion arises, and we come to what we call a view. A view of me, a view of you. You know, perhaps, you know, you're walking in the dining room and you pass the person who You know, it's a chronic shuffler who sits near you. And notice the moment you see them, what happens? You know the flinch? You know the flinch? We often don't get past the flinch moment. I often think of mindfulness as a way of getting past the flinch moment. Because flinch is about to be abandonment. But notice you pass that person in the dining room who you know shuffles. And immediately the memories and associations arise. Oh, that's the person who keeps interfering with my perfect meditation. In fact, I don't even like them. They're kind of mindless person. They're probably ruining everybody's retreat. Now, that's a view. That's what we call a view. We have fixed the person in our mind based on perception, feeling memory, and association. Now it's probably, actually, and in doing that, we've actually fixed our own heart in aversion. Now that happens simultaneously. Now certainly that view stops us seeing that person fully or seeing fully the nature or the effect of the aversion or resistance upon us. You know, and this story is one that plays itself out over and over again in a single day. How many views we have had, you know? I'm like this, I'm wonderful, I'm a failure, you know? I'm terrific, I'm a schmuck, you know, I'm a fantastic meditator, the worst yogi in the world, you know? I'm loving, oh, I'm so angry, you know? How many (laughs) views, they just keep going and going. And you know what the power of a view is to produce amnesia, Because when we're in that middle of that one view, we've entirely forgotten about the 300 views we've already had today. Never mind the many millions, uncountable millions of views we have had in our life about ourselves. That one is true in the moment. It's it's amnesia. You know, we might say that the nature of clinging is amnesia. The nature of clinging to any view is amnesia. Acceptance is really beginning to find the willingness to bow to the fact that our view can never tell us the truth of what is. Our view can never describe the totality. Now intimacy and acceptance really asks us to exchange our view for a quality of not knowing, Not being locked within any view at all. I must say, this is one of the most difficult places for us to rest. Because although we can perhaps see the lethal, toxic nature of our views, at least they give us a sense, at least for one moment in life, a sense of certainty. I know. I know who I am. I know who you are. Resting in no view... To us, looks like living like a marshmallow, but only from the perspective of a view, I might say. Not from the perspective of holding no view. You know, one of my friends tells me about one of his early Zen teachers, you know, who was very much into this not-knowing mind, would never actually be definite about anything, you know. So, you know, somebody asked him, you know, how are you today? He'd say, I don't know, you know. You know what comes next? Don't know. You know, and so this got to be sort of infectious in the community, you know. I mean, it got very marshmallowish. you know, that, you know, are we having dinner today? Don't know, you know. So, you know, you, John, don't know, you know. So, you know, you married? No, don't know, you know. So it would get really ridiculous, you know, it's really. But on a deeper level, I mean, that becomes a view in itself, doesn't it, you know. I don't know, you know, it becomes a view, it becomes a position in itself, But I think on a deeper level, to know how to keep releasing the contractedness and the clinging around our views is what opens us a tremendous vastness of openness and freedom. Not knowing actually is what allows us to have a dialogue with the difficult. Because knowing has already predetermined its outcome. Not knowing is what allows us to have a dialogue with the difficult rather than fleeing from it. Now, wise mindfulness and wise effort is truly a way of constantly having a way of dialogue with the moment. I don't mean a verbal dialogue of of storytelling, but a way of of relatedness, a way of connectedness. Even in the face of the painful the difficult, we can ask, what does this need? Is it attention? Is it generosity? Is it love? Is it patience? We're asked sometimes to cultivate what is not present. In the face of harshness or ill will, we may be asked to cultivate a greatness of heart. But We're learning to be and embrace what is just there. Acceptance, that kind of acceptance is actually the beginning of a path of transformation. You know, acceptance is not an end in itself again, but acceptance is a beginning of a path of transformation. To know what is needed, to cultivate what is needed, to let go of what is not needed. Through intimacy, we can begin to calm the agitation, to befriend to understand really what in this teaching, what it means not to be governed, to find that freedom of being, of really not being governed by anything, but of resting in a profound intimacy with all things. we take just a moment quietly together... (coughs) Grant that I may be given appropriate difficulties, that my heart may be awakened and my path of compassion fulfilled.